Don't let me forget this. We will have some announcements at the end of the service. As always, welcome to Yellowstone. And uh, if you are a visitor with us this morning, I hope that you received one of our welcome little bags that has uh, a little bit of information about the church and contact details should you wish to ask us any questions uh, after uh, any of the services that you attend here. Um, we will give a few more announcements at the end of the service, but uh, don't forget the doctrinal class. This is the first Sunday of the month, and uh, so our doctrinal class will be this evening. It will be held downstairs at uh, 6 p.m., and uh, this is also a snack or fellowship Sunday. Uh, so if uh, you want to bring some snacks, if you're coming this evening, you are welcome to do so, and uh, you'll be able to have snacks while we are having the class downstairs. Matthew chapter 5, and we welcome you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to stand with us in reverence of His Word. <coughs> Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May the Lord add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. Thank you, and you may be seated. This last week, we considered, really, I called it an introduction of an introduction to the Beatitudes, whereby we looked at the providence of God in sending the Lord Jesus Christ and how the providence of God protected them through every aspect of his birth, his coming. He was born at the right place. He was born at the right time, born in the right tribe born in the right land and born for the right purpose. He was born to die. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. There's actually very little in the scriptures that actually speak to the next 28 years of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that at the very beginning, we have the visit in Matthew chapter 2, just to give you a little bit of a synopsis in Matthew chapter 2, you have the visit of the wise men. Now, we, when we left the Lord Jesus Christ last week and we were speaking about his birth or his first advent, of course, this is actually remembered at Christmas time now, but he was more than likely actually born in late August or early September. He was not born on December the 25th. That's one of those, that's one of those errors that have cropped up down through the centuries. In addition to that, the wise men were never in the stable. They never met the shepherds. The wise men actually came 
when the Lord Jesus Christ was a toddler, he was living with his mother Mary and his stepfather Joseph, and they were living in Nazareth. And when the wise men came, or in Bethlehem, and then they leave from there, and they end up going down into Egypt and then coming back, a distance that would have taken some two to three weeks in journey time. And then we find a herald comes on the scene. Now you have to remember something. We have the word of God and we have been blessed with this reality, this, this truth that this is God's word. It doesn't contain God's word. It is God's word. And because it is God's word, we have some accounts that have been given to us and accounts that are not given or things that are not explicitly stated in scripture are mere speculation. But we do know that there's only just a handful of events. One of them, for example, is when the Lord Jesus Christ is 12 years old and they travel to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, while they are there, he is found speaking by his mother and by Joseph. And he is found speaking with the learned leaders, sitting down and teaching them. And of course, they come up to him and they say, do you not understand? We've been looking for you. You've been gone for three days. And he says, do you not know I must be about my father's business? The Lord Jesus Christ was not speaking about Joseph. He was not selling his carpentry wares in Jerusalem at the time of the feast. He was actually there on the business of the father, his father, God the father, our father. The Lord Jesus Christ was born approximately five, anywhere between five and six B.C., this was before the common era, before Christ. But six months before his birth, there is another baby that is born, and of course, that is who? John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, gives us this prophecy. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, or prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what a difference between these two individuals that we're speaking about, the Lord Jesus Christ versus John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's wearing rough clothes. He's wearing the skins of, of camels, and he's eating locust and wild honey. Not much of a diet unless you're on like Weight Watchers. It's not a great way to be able to lose weight, but as he is walking and he is preaching throughout around the Sea of Galilee, which would have been in the northern part of Israel, we're going to look at that in just a moment, and as he is in the northern part of Israel and preaching down through Judea and preaching throughout the desert, he comes back to Judea, and as he is baptizing, one day John chapter 1 tells us that he looks up and he looks across the hills and he sees Jesus coming and he points to him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you have to understand something. We have the Word of God. For 400 and roughly 55 years now, a period of silence of 430 years, and then the time before John the Baptist starts his ministry, there has been no word from God at all. Kingdoms have come, kingdoms have gone, empires have risen, and empires have collapsed. The last time we find Daniel, for example, what has just happened with him? Roughly Daniel chapter 6 or chapter 7, we find that the Babylonian Empire has collapsed and the Medes and the Persians have come on the scene. Since then, there's another even greater power that has arisen, and that is Alexander the Great. 
It is said Alexander the Great died when he was 33, and shortly before he died, he actually sat down and wept in front of his generals because he complained that there was no more of the world, no more of the civilized world left to be able to reduce to his realm. After him came the Romans, and they came for a very short period of time, and there Maccabees rose, Simon Maccabees and his sons, and they rose up and they drove the Romans from their land. But then the Romans returned, and they returned with a vengeance. And it's in the midst of this hard taxation. It's in the middle of this time, for example, if, if, if Brother Ryan, if you were walking along and a Roman soldier walked past you, you could be going on the other way. You could be going home from work. You could be doing, you could be going on, on the Sabbath day. You could be doing whatever it is that you were doing. And a Roman soldier could come up to you and he would say, carry my backpack. And they were fond of doing this to the Jews. And you would be forced to carry that and you would be forced to carry that for exactly one mile. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he is speaking about being a servant, and he says to them, if a Roman soldier compels you to go one mile, go with him two. He is saying, be the ultimate example of a servant. But John the Baptist is not there for his own benefit. He is a forerunner. He is a herald, a messenger. Now, as I was preparing for this message today, it is interesting that you can actually find heralds that are all, all, that are listed in the in the, the 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 books of history all the way back to the times of Egypt. Now, how many of you watched the coronation of King Charles III of England? Okay, did anybody see it? Pictures, anything like that? I'm sure you all know it was news um, earlier this year as he was. Uh, brought to his coronation. Well, there were a group of people that were wearing very colorful red and gold and blue, uh, almost uh, just below about thigh length they were wearing, and they were marching in front of him everywhere that they went. In England, they still use what's known as a heraldic system. And this heraldic system basically is an announcement to the world that the king is coming right behind them. Now, sometimes they'll have a message that they will bring or that they will declare. For example, in some of the olden movies, uh, you will have uh, the trumpet the fanfare that will be blowing. And when the fanfare blows, they will say, behold, the king is here. And everybody is, this needs to go down a little bit, please. And everybody will do what? They will all bow. They will bow to the king who is now in their presence. This is what John was. He was a herald. He was sent before the king to be, as one person stated or defined it, a messenger of good news, to bring good news, to tell, to announce and publish. The sense here is to announce or to convey a message of positive information about recent and important events. Just as it was with the coronation of King Charles III, they came and they announced to the world everywhere they went as they went from, from place to place and, and they went to the abbey where it took place and then they went to the palace and these colorful uh, outfits that they're all wearing that would have cost a, a great deal of money. They're all embroidered in cloth and with jewels. And as they come and they say, here comes by their very presence, they're saying, here comes King Charles III. And yet here's John the Baptist who has been prophesied Isaiah wrote 700 years previous 
that John the Baptist is coming. And unlike the heralds of all the kings who have ever lived, this one comes in a lowly manner. He comes wearing very little. He comes wearing these rough clothing, and there's nothing special about him whatsoever. Oh, what a glorious day that God sovereignly and providentially protected his beloved son through all that Satan and his minions tried to do in order to thwart the plan of the ages. Think about what he tried to do with Herod. Any one of the steps from a human perspective, you could look at it and say, well, wait a minute. How is that possible for that to take place? How is it possible that, that God protected him from all of that? I mean, Herod, here he is. He's, he's the greatest man there outside of the, the Roman emperor. And he's sending all of these soldiers out. And he has killed every male child two years old and under. And yet Jesus Christ is protected. The wise men come and they give their gifts what an appropriate time. It's more than likely that the gifts that were given were used by Joseph and Mary to be able to fund their trip down to Egypt, to be able to stay for the, the two years that they were living there. And as the wise men go away, the, they are visited by, in, a, in a dream. They are visited by an angel and the angel warns them, do not go back the way that you came because King Herod is going to kill you. He wants to kill the baby. It is no, it is no, nothing short of a miracle, I should say, that the Lord Jesus Christ being born where he was, I mean, he could have, what if his parents had stopped in Jerusalem? But yet that wouldn't have fulfilled the prophecy because he had to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is only about two and a half miles over the border into the area of Judea, into that tribal area. Even the smallest of the details were protected by God and it was prophesied hundreds if not thousands of years before. Not content with direct means, if you were to look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, go back a couple of chapters, we find John the Baptist preparing the way. And look what he says in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, you know the account. The Lord Jesus Christ goes down into the water and he is baptized by John the Baptist for the sake of righteousness to be able to fulfill all things. And as he is baptized again, it is a reminder, he sets the example for us. However, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do this as a voluntary, uh, as, as a voluntary uh, uh, celebration of this ordinance of baptism, whereby we identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the end of chapter 3, look what happens. A voice out of heaven sounds, and there is something that looks like a dove. It was not a dove. It says it looks like one. And it rested upon him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We hear this, this 
uh, this, this term or this phrase, this name, this title, if you will, that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. We also find this on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. We find this in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a love there must be between the Father and the Son that the Son would be willing to submit to the will of the Father, but that the Father would be willing to do this on your behalf and mine. But then we come to chapter 4. And it's almost like a little bit of an entry. And we find, of course, and we're not going to dwell on this this morning, we may look at this at another time in greater depth, but the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ goes down into the desert. He is led away by the Spirit after his baptism, and he is there for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, we find that as the Lord Jesus Christ, being in human flesh, he hungers like us. Now, I realize that this part is speculation, but we're going to show you a few slides this morning. This is considered to be the Mount of Temptation from which Satan would have taken Jesus and they would have looked out over the kingdoms of the world. But he starts off and he says, if you are truly the Son of God, command these stones, of which there would have been plenty in the land of Egypt, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Could Jesus have done that? Yes. But Jesus replies, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where does he go? He goes to Scripture. He takes them up to the holy city, and he, he sets them then on a pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says to him again, Again, it is written. Do you know what the oldest trick in the book is? Satan coming to mankind and saying, Did God really say that? It's the same question that he asks of us today. Does God really say those things? Does he really expect you and I to believe the commands that he has given in his word? Yes, he does. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He takes them up to a very high mountain. It's very possible this was the mountain that is in question. And he shows them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, and this is actually the most laughable of all the, of the whole three of the temptations that we are given. And I believe that there was actually much more than this, but this is what we are given. And he says, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, what could Jesus have said at this point? Listen, buddy, I was there at creation. I was the one that created you and all the heavens and all the earth, and the entire universe, all of this already belongs to me. But he doesn't. He says, it is written, you shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil leaves him. What an incredible lead up to the Lord Jesus Christ beginning his ministry. Now, I want to show you a couple of more slides here. This is actually at the Sea of Galilee, looking towards the south. This is actually sitting on top of the mountain 
where the Lord Jesus Christ would have given this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is, which is Matthew chapter five through chapter seven. So as you're sitting up here, so in this case, if you're very familiar with the, uh, the, the way that we are laid out here, this is actually to the north is this direction. So if you were st sitting up on this mountain, you would be looking directly at the Sea of Galilee below you, okay? This is considered to be the Mount of Beatitudes. There's actually a church there. It's a very small village that is up there as well. Um, the village is only about eight or 900 people who have been living there. Been, they, that group of people have been living there for probably several centuries uh, and their ancestors, okay? Again, another picture looking towards the Sea of Galilee. Obviously a very beautiful location for Jesus to begin his ministry of preaching and teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And then we come to this little town right here. You may recognize this town because the Lord Jesus Christ actually says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes this little town would have been right above the Mount of Beatitudes, and this is where Jesus begins his sermon. This is all that remains of this city today or of this town. That's it. It's just like going to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you were to actually go and look down through history, every one of the churches that are found in Revelation 2 and 3 were all non-existent less than 100 years later after John writes to them in around AD 95 to 96. Why? Because at some point, the children of Israel and those who are true believers forgot to remind their children who forgot to remind their children to keep the commands of God. This is why it is important for you and I who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ Open up your Bibles, open up the scriptures and share them with your children. It is the greatest gift that you can give them. But again, this is what's left. Torn down ruins, something that is totally uninhabitable. Your children and my children can inhabit, they, they can not just inhabit, but they can inherit the entire world. But as Jesus Christ himself said, if you have the entire world but lose your soul, you have lost everything. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we find this. Let's read verse 16 as well. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus begins to preach. And he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5 because we're gonna come back to this kingdom of heaven. But I want to give you, first of all, the definition of what a beatitude is. A beatitude, first of all, oh, and I do apologize if somebody would like to help out here, I do have, sometimes I forget these things. Thank you, Brother Jeff. The definition of beatitude, first of all, is one who is blessed. You may well remember this from Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He is simply going back to the Old Testament scriptures and he is sharing with them the importance of those who are blessed or happy. Now, happiness, sometimes that word is actually the same word that we get our word happenstance from or circumstances. How many of you are happy all the time, 100%, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Whatever, Mike. We are not happy all the time. But I can tell you that per God's word, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are blessed. We are blessed beyond measure. But to be blessed or to be happy, this is found within the context of the Beatitudes. In other words, you could take any one of them, take one at random. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy in verse 7. Are you a merciful person? Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you live your life in such a way that you are looking for that chip to be knocked off your shoulder? Or are you one who is seeking to be a peacemaker between other brothers and sisters or between maybe you and people in your home who are your closest neighbors? What about this one? Blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you. They utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, we mentioned this yesterday. The Lord Jesus Christ here is not speaking about being persecuted because you hit all 75 lights that showed up on a Monday morning on your way to work on Dell Range and they were all red. That is not persecution. Persecution is suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some of you here who may have experienced this in your work. You may have already experienced this in your life. There may be family members that you have who haven't talked to you for years. There may be jobs, some of you who have lost your jobs in the past because you have spoken up and said, I will not do whatever it is that you want me to do because it goes contrary to the word of God. We live in a world that is changing. We live in a wonderful time because this is where God has placed us but there are some things that don't change, and that is biblical morality. This is what Jesus Christ is speaking of. You see, these teachings, these are teachings, and they are instructions for living. He deals with things like, for example, how do we represent ourselves to the world? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's speaking about the unbelievers looking at you. There is no greater testimony that you can have in your life than for an unbeliever to come up and say, you know, I've been watching you and it is obvious you are a Christian. Not one of those worldly type Christians, but a real Christian. It is obvious that you follow Jesus. He deals with things like anger and lust and divorce and, and, and how we should respond to one another when it comes to oaths and, and judging others. He even deals with things like not being anxious, not worrying about what tomorrow is. Don't lay up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay them up in heaven. It's the same thing that Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and he says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Everything that we have here, one day it'll all be gone. One day there won't be 
any pile of bricks here. One day, none of us may be here. If the Lord doesn't return for another 500 or 1,000 years, there, there may not even be any inhabitable land around here. We have no idea what God has in store for us or what he has in store for this land, but we know that he is in control. These are not commands, by the way, to enter the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he is speaking through these Beatitudes, and he goes right through this sermon, which is one of the five discourses that are found in the book of Matthew. And as he is speaking to the believers, and as he is speaking to these individuals, he is not telling them, as long as you do all of these things, you will find eternal life. We looked at this this morning in our Sunday Bible class with Dr. Steve Lawson. You can obey all of these commands and you will still find yourself guilty. You will stand judged before God if this is your standard because the standard cannot be what you do on the outside in order to try to please God. It has to be what God has done in you. And what is in you then comes out to the world. But this is part of the gospel, which is the good news. Again, John the Baptist, he comes and he is preaching repentance and he is telling them and he is baptizing and he is confronting the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and, and all of these people who were striving to look towards the Messiah. And yet the reality was the Messiah came, it had been prophesied. And when he showed up, this man who was more than a man, he was more than a good person. He was more than just a rabbi. They didn't believe it. There are some four or five hundred, depending on which biblical scholar is writing them down. There are four or five hundred prophecies that, that have been given in the scriptures, and the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled every one of them. And the chances we spoke last week of one person fulfilling just 16 of these prophecies is one to the power of 64 zeros. That's the chance of one person being able to fulfill just 16 prophecies, and the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled over 400 of them. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, listen to what one commentary noted. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. Those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit to Him are not part of the kingdom of God. In contrast, those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and gladly surrender to God's rule in their hearts are part of the kingdom of God. In this sense, the kingdom of God is spiritual. Jesus said His kingdom was not of this world, and He preached that repentance is necessary to be a part of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Now we're talking about submitting to authority. For those of you who have served or are currently serving in the military, I want to ask you a question. What happens if you are, a, if you are in some kind of a command, if you are, for example, a, 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 a sergeant, or if you are a commanding officer and you give somebody a command and they refuse to obey that command, how long is that troop going to remain in their position? Not very long. They will be disciplined. There are, there are rules. The Uniform Code of Military Justice requires a certain set of standards. For example, a troop can't come in and decide, at least unless they changed it here anytime recently, uh, they can't come in and wear any kind of hairstyle that they want. Is that correct? Are, are there still standards? Are they allowed to, for, can a man 
grow his hair out long and wear a ponytail now? Okay. Um, are troops allowed to wear earrings or are they allowed to do whatever they want when they come to work? Can they wear casual clothes instead of a uniform? No. So what are they doing? They're actually submitting to what? The authority of the person who is commanding them. Now, as crazy as this is, if you were to go to some European countries, it's amazing the standards that have dropped from what they used to be for those who are serving in their militaries. I'll leave it up to you. You can Google it. And that was not an endorsement of Google. But what is the kingdom of heaven? The word or the phrase the kingdom of heaven is actually only found in this one book out of 66 books and it is found 32 times. It is written primarily with the Jewish audience in mind, and it was written by Matthew the tax collector. Again, what a, what a providential act of God that somebody who was hated by the Romans and hated by the Jews equally would be used by God to write one of the biggest books in the New Testament. You see, a tax collector was one who would go to the Romans and the Romans would say, well, we want to hire you to be able to collect taxes for us. And they would sit at what was called a seat of customs and they would have boxes there and they would have Roman soldiers who were guarding them and guarding the box. And they would collect the money, but as they would come up and, and you might owe one shekel this particular year and you would come up and he would look in his book and he would say, well, today for you, special price, four shekels. No, 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 no. The law says one shekel. And this tax collector would look at the Roman soldiers and they'd say, go beat the guy up. And he'd come back, he'd say, okay, I'll give you four shekels. Well, the tax collector would send one shekel off to Rome and he would keep three for himself. So he was hated not just by the Romans, but he was hated by his own countrymen. But listen to what the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 47 and verse 7 when he is speaking about the kingdom of God. For God is the king of all the earth, therefore sing praises with a psalm. Are you struggling with anything this morning? You don't have to answer that out loud. Are things rough in life? Are you spiritual or emotional or financial? Whatever it is that you're going through in your life, God knows. But you know what the problem is? Poor theology sometimes changes the way, always changes the way that we look at life. You want to have a different aspect on, on life? Write this verse down as an example. Psalm 47, 7, write it down on a card. Tape it in your car. Tape it in your workplace. Somebody comes up and asks you, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. What a great way to be able to tell them that God, our God, is sovereign. You ever find yourself maybe humming a hymn that you heard on Sunday? Or maybe one that you remember from your childhood or, or growing up and you're singing this song or you're humming it under your breath? What are you humming? Well, you know, I don't remember all the words, but I'm just thankful to God that I am here today. My grandmother, this was my mom's mom, for the last, well, I don't know, I guess it was about a year before she passed away, she Ended up falling and we got a call one morning and uh, she had been laying on the concrete floor in her bedroom. There was a little strip there that uh, she had fallen on and she had laid on the cold concrete all night long for about eight, eight or nine hours as best they could, re they could recall or figure out. And um, 
she broke her hip to the point where she would never walk again. And we began to notice her mind really begin to go downhill to decay over that period of time. And it was probably about six months before she passed away. I remember walking in one day and she called me by the name of one of her brothers. And those of you who have gone through that, maybe with a family member, you know what that's like. And then I walked in one day and I had become her father and then I had become an uncle. And then one day I walked in and she didn't know who I was and made no recollection. But there was one thing that my grandmother could do until the day that she died. You could play a hymn or you could sing a hymn and she would sing that hymn with you because she knew it. You could read a psalm and she would read right along with you even though she didn't have a Bible in front of her. You see, that's an amazing person. That 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 person, my grandmother, had been so filled. My grandmother used to love singing. She would sing when she was washing the dishes, when she was washing clothes, when when she was walking to the store. She would you would always hear her humming or singing. But to think, God, because God is the King of all the earth, we can and we are commanded to sing praises to Him. What about the next time some difficult time comes up in your life? It doesn't matter whether it's a stoplight. It doesn't matter whether you go out and you have a flat tire. How about singing praises to God and saying, Lord, for whatever reason you have put this in my life, thank you. God has absolute power. Jesus Christ is sovereign. And again, as we said, Nobody has ever, nor can they ever make him Lord. He is Lord of all, period. We find in this section here the role of a king. The Lord Jesus Christ, is, as he is sitting there on the top of the mountain, he is probably looking across or looking down towards the Sea of Galilee, thinking about all of the things that are going to transpire. You see, none of the events that we find in the Gospels caught Jesus Christ unawares. He knew what was going to come. Maybe he was thinking about the time that he would go out there and he would walk out upon the waters and eventually one of his disciples that he would be calling to him would be asking him, Lord, if it is really you, can I come out of the boat and walk to you on the water? Maybe he was thinking of that. Maybe he was thinking all the way down through time and thinking of you and I. And as he speaks these words, we find the role of a king. Listen to Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? I'm sure there are a lot of people who are sitting there in Galilee and they had already heard John the Baptist preach. They knew who he was. And yet this guy comes and he's wearing ordinary, normal clothing for a Jewish man. And, and as he comes up and he gathers and all of these people for some inexplicable reason have all gathered together and they find themselves up on the top of this mountain looking down over the beautiful scenery of the Sea of Galilee and he opens up his mouth and he begins to teach them. And I'm sure that some of them must have thought, who is this King of Glory? David continues and he says, it is the Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty, the Lord or Yahweh, mighty in battle. Verse 10 continues, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Selah, meditate on this. We have used this illustration before, but when we undergo a tragedy, we don't tend to think about the tragedies that take place around the world. 
One point since we were here this last Sunday, approximately 1.2 million people have gone out into eternity. You should be thankful to God that you and I were not one of them. We have talked about tragedies that have taken place. For example, if you looked at the news in the Philippines this last week, I think it was just yesterday, there were two earthquakes that struck, two major earthquakes. One registered about 7.4 and the other one 6.3 or 6.4 on the Richter scale. They still don't know whether there are people that have died in that earthquake. Earthquakes happen all over the world because the world is under condemnation because of sin. the tragedies that take place that we do tend to remember, things like 9-11. 9-11, it's hard to believe that that was actually over 22 years ago. A large part of our congregation wasn't even born then. Some of you may not even be old enough to remember those events. And yet people want to throw up their hands and wail and say, Oh God, where are you? Where were you when this happened? He's the same place he was when all of the good things happened as well. He's on his throne. He will not relinquish his throne to another. So trust in him. Rest securely in our Sabbath rest, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the role of the king? We're going to find these as we break these beatitudes down over the weeks to come. But one of the things that a king does is he provides protection for his people. You remember 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. This is the role of a king. This is who King Jesus is. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is that your testimony this morning? Our king provides for the needs of the people. You know, the greatest need that the people there looking over the Sea of Galilee had that day was not more bread and fish. It was to be fed spiritually, Brother Ryan. That's the greatest need that you and I will ever have is to know Christ. But one day if persecution comes to this land, what if, what if persecution in times of trial like our brothers and sisters face across the world? What, what happens if, if we encounter that here and we find ourselves in prison like our North Korean brothers, for example, and some of them don't get even one meal a day? They're wasting away in prison. And one day they will close their eyes in death. And the only people we'll know will be the guards to come and collect them because nobody outside will ever know except for God. What if that came to us? Would we still see God as king? Would we still see Jesus Christ as our protector, the one who gives us what we need? The role of a king is to maintain order to be able to represent deity. Jesus Christ came to show us the Father, and yet more in more than that, we find in Colossians chapter 1 that he was the fullness of God in himself. 
God's kingdom, number five. We're speaking of the kingdom of heaven. What is this kingdom? We find actually in Matthew chapter 6 where the model prayer is given. This is not the Lord's prayer because Lord Jesus Christ never actually prayed this prayer, which we know, of course, is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The reason this is not the Lord's prayer is because he would never have had anything to seek forgiveness for. He would have nothing that he could repent of because he was sinless in every way. But we do find something interesting. Turn with me one page over in most of your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And look at what he says in verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us this. This is what he is telling to all of those people who are gathered on that hillside in northern part of Galilee, looking down on that beautiful sea. When you pray, when you approach, <coughs> excuse me, when you approach the Father, here's what you need to say. Lord, your kingdom come. It's the same thing that John prays in John and Revelation chapter 22. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. It's not the other way around. We are not asking God to simply put a rubber stamp on whatever it is that we want to pray for. We know the scriptures say that if we pray whatever we ask, if we ask in his name, he will give it to us. The problem is most people forget that little part of the caveat that says, if we ask according to his will. He hears us. God's kingdom is where his will is done. This is a present experience in the Gospels. We find the Lord Jesus Christ here, and he presents himself, and yet even at his, right before his crucifixion, he is talked to by Pilate, and he says, are you truly the king of the Jews? And he says, what? You say that I am? You see, because the earthly kingdom was not one that Jesus Christ came to establish. He didn't come to rescue the Israelites from the Romans. He came to rescue us from our sin. That was the purpose of his coming. One day he came first as a lamb. He will come the second time as the lion of Judah. This is a reality that we know that is in the future and this fullness of God's kingdom. It is not just here. It is not that we are part of this kingdom of heaven now, but the fullness of this will be at his second coming when he returns and he gathers all of his bride to himself. What a glorious day that will be when our Jesus we shall see. We shall look upon his face, the one who saved us by his grace, as the hymn writer put it. We're going to conclude here for this morning. And I want you to take stock of your own heart in your life this morning. The Bible is very clear that this kingdom in which Jesus Christ announces is coming, this kingdom of heaven. He reminds them in Matthew chapter 7, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, he reminds them that your life is either like the one who builds his house on the sand or the one who builds their house on a rock. The rock is Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2. The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense that was delivered. 
this same Jesus, the one who was rejected by the religious leaders, the one who was rejected by the nation of Israel, this same Jesus is the one that has rejected the world over. And yet it is the same Jesus who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy hearted, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Are you learning of Jesus Christ this morning? Have you taken the yoke of our Savior upon you? He says, I'm bearing the burden, but it is from the cross that he calls you and I to follow him. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. You are not worthy to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ if you do not do the things that he commands you and I to do. We must obey his word. We must love him. The two greatest commands Jesus Christ says himself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I'm sure that every one of us at some point in our life, we have failed miserably in that one aspect alone. Because you and I cannot say that for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for our entire life, that we have loved God to that degree, Brother Mike. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, for some of us, our closest neighbors, the people that you actually live with in your home. And there are a lot of times that we don't treat those people the way that we should. Sometimes we can get so caught up in ourselves because the world just bombards us with all of this stuff about self-esteem and self-worth. Listen, the reality is it's not about you. If you doubt that, Go with me afterwards. Let's all get in our cars. We'll go right up here to this cemetery, to that cemetery, to the veteran cemetery, the one over on the east side of town, and I can show you graveyards that are full of people who thought they were indispensable. Shortly after you're gone, nobody's going to remember who you are, but maybe family and a few friends. A hundred years from now, who's going to remember you? Two hundred years, five hundred years from now, most people are not going to remember you and I. But as the little poem says, only when life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. It's not about what we contribute to this life. It's about who we are looking to. And Psalm 107 verse 2 is a wonderful reminder. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that you have come by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, not, not trusting in anything that the church can do for you, not, not trusting in what you can do for the church by giving or serving or, or whatever it may be, but trusting in Him alone. Psalm 107 verse 2 reminds us, let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Do you want to know, you want to know why I get so passionate at times when I'm preaching or there are times that I'm just overwhelmed? I'm overwhelmed because of Jesus. Because I know where he has brought me from. I know where he's taking me to. I know that he's coming back for me one day. Why would you want to be left here? Not only have I been forgiven, but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you also have been forgiven. You can walk out of you here with your head held high. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how many times you've struggled. It doesn't matter what sin you've been involved with. The Bible says, come unto me. 
And as Revelation 22 even concludes, the Apostle John says, He who is thirsty, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. And Jesus Christ himself said, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Your salvation is not based on you, and the keeping of your salvation is not up to you. It is Jesus Christ. What a glorious Savior we serve. I have often said we heard this. Where's Brother Mike when we went down to the conference with, with uh, Brother Steve Lawson of the Expo Expository Pastors Seminar down there a couple of years ago. can't believe it's been that long now. But he said this. When we get together, Paul Washer is another one who has said this. Don't come up and congratulate the pastor on the sermon. Don't just come up and tell him what a wonderful person he is. How about coming up and saying, what a glorious God we serve? Because that's who it's about. It's all about God. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. One day I'm going to be gone. One day I'm going to give my last sermon. One day you're going to hear your last sermon. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? The last verse this morning comes from one, Psalm 116. And Psalm 116 reminds us of the psalmist David writing. He says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord, do it today while there is still yet time. Father, I am thankful for these beatitudes. I am thankful that it was the king of kings as he sat upon that hill and gathered the people to himself. And as he has given these beatitudes that we are going to look at, Lord willing, over the weeks to come, blessed are those who follow these. Blessed are those to whom these things happen. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Help us, Father, to have an eternal perspective. Help us to look forward with joy to the day when you will turn to your son and you will say, go gather your bride. Forever we will be with the Lord. Father, if there are any here who have placed their faith in you, and maybe they are hesitant about sharing with others, give them the courage to be able to share. Even Luke tells us, your word tells us that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over every sinner who repents. We will rejoice with them, knowing that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, Father, we say, what a glorious God we serve. What a great King of glory that we can look to. So let us sing psalms with praise. Yes, it's in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.